0: Hey, it's Daryl Etherington, and we're here on Found, TechCrunch's best podcast, the greatest podcast ever made. I'm here with my co host and childhood friend, my fellow kid at heart,
1: Jordan Crook, Playmate for life. Oh, wait, Playmate is like a term for the Playboy mm, bunnies, right? We'll stay we away want... from that one. We'll just clip it out or not, whatever. <laughs>
0: But as I mentioned, you already know what this podcast is because it's the greatest one. It is a weekly show where we talk to a different founder about their experience building a company and starting a business, which is what TechCrunch is all about. In case you didn't know that also, maybe you just came here randomly and you were like, what is this? I just found this.
1: Maybe you were lost and now you're found.
0: We've got a lot of branding in this one, so that's good for SEO, I think. But today we're talking to... Jelani Memory, who is founder and CEO of A Kid's Company About, which is what it sounds like. And that's kind of the point, as you'll hear from Jelani himself. They started off building amazing books, which are all titled A Kid's Book About, and it's then followed by something. And the topics are difficult and diverse and wide-ranging. And it's an amazing endeavor that, that he took on. And then it sort of accidentally became a business, which he'll explain as we get right to that.
2: Hey, Jelani, how's it going? It, it's going all right, man. Uh, glad to be here.
0: Great to have you here. I know we just covered this in the preamble, but we, we it's a shame we don't have video on this podcast. Johnny has a great setup. He's got one of the coolest, most visually interesting backgrounds I've seen on a Zoom call or any call so far. A lot of Easter
2: eggs in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling from Willy Wonka here, so you know, it's it's like uh, my little mad chocolate factory here. <laughs> nice. Well,
0: thanks for joining us, and we're really excited to talk to you today. So I think the best place to start is for you to give us just a quick intro to your company, which is a kid's company about, and we would love to hear more about what it's about because it kind of stops
2: there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, what is it about? A kids company about uh, started it back in 2019. Um, we want to empower a generation of kids through diverse storytelling, and so we have books, we have podcasts, and we have classes, and we're a weird hybrid of CPG media, um, and and a little bit of tech thrown in there as well. Yeah, I th- I, the work we're doing is is really exciting. It's really impactful, and and it really stemmed from my sort of role as a dad I have six kids believe it or not that's a lot wow. of kids
0: yes that is yeah <laughs> and and, and my, more my than a life handful. as an entrepreneur <laughs> that's <laughs>
2: more yes and uh yeah so that's that's us in a snapshot
0: great yeah I, I think Megan Rose Dickey who used to be a TechCrunch now protocol spoke to you right before and yeah at the time I think you were uh single mode I don't know if you had the podcast and the classes going yet so I'd love to hear a bit more about how kind of like you expanded because like, the books were the focus then. maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like the books were the, were the big focus then.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I'll take you all the way back to when we got started. Um, sure. It was a, it was an accident. I was chief product officer and co-founder of a company called Circle, um, parental controls partner with Disney and T-Mobile and a bunch of other folks. And I wrote a book for my kids. I had five kids at the time with one on the way. Um, and, and for those folks who can't see me, this is a podcast, uh, I'm black Uh, and I got, I got two black kids and and four white kids. Um, and so raising a blended family, race comes up a lot, uh, and especially, uh, racism. And I wanted my kids always to feel comfortable talking to me about it. So, so I wrote a book for them, right? What else is a dad to do than, than to write a book for their kids?
0: Right. Plus when you have six, it
2: helps with the scale issue. It's efficiency, right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And they loved it. And they were the first ones to give me an idea to go, this could really be a series of books. You could do a kid's book about blank, and a kid's book about depression, and a kid's book about anxiety, and a kid's book about divorce. And so, personal projects, you know, on steroids turned into this thing where I left Circle to go out on my own again to start a new company, not because I thought I could make a bunch of money, but because these kinds of books should exist, right? So my book was titled A Kid's Book About Racism, and I wanted to go out and find other folks like me who had something to say about an important topic for kids um, and, and, and start that conversation with a grown-up in their life, whether that was a parent or an auntie or an uncle or grandparent. And so we started with six books. A kid's book about anxiety, a kid's book about creativity, a kid's book about money and a handful of others. And and now we're well over, I think, 60 plus books. And uh, and that's where we got our start. And and it was bananas from the beginning. Who would have thought, you know, direct to consumer kids book publishing company on topics like racism, death and cancer would work. But it did because parents and grownups really needed it. And then the leap to a media company really came after, you know, the the company really accelerated in the summer of 2020 on, you know, with the the, the Black Lives Matter protests with sort of just the the frustration and the angst of the pandemic. And I took a step back and thought, you know, there's more stories for us to tell and there's more storytellers for us to go find. And so the plan was was to do things that I actually knew something about because I didn't know anything about publishing when we started the company. But i knew a lot about podcasting and audio and i knew a lot about filmmaking that was my background before startups i promise this is getting to a point and so it was let's go tell stories through words through audio through video and thus was born you know the jump from a kid's book about to a kid's company about as a kid's media company instead of just a book publisher.
0: It's interesting to me that you started with something that was sort of like outside your normal comfort zone, but then kind of backed into the other things. But was it just because that was the most expedient way to kind of accomplish the thing that you personally wanted to get for your own kids? Or like, you know, why not start with the things that you're more familiar with?
2: Well, it wasn't supposed to be a business, right? So <laughs> yeah. what, I, what I knew I had in my hands with my book and after showing it to my kids, I, I started to show it to some friends, teachers, other parents, stuff like that. And and they had the same response every time. One, they were blown away. And two, they would they would sit there and, and read the book right in front of me, which is really weird, by the way, if you put <laughs> a thing and somebody reads it in front of you. And then they would always ask the same thing afterwards. Can I take this home and read it to my kids? And I was like, no, this is my only copy. <laughs> you can't take my book home. It was the best example of product market fit you've ever seen. I would literally yeah. have strangers walk up to me in a coffee shop and go, "Where can I get that book?" and it was like, "This is the only copy in existence, right?" So, uh, what I've distilled out of that over time and 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 why we had why why we had to start with books. Was there something really magical about a book? Yeah. And and, and I know I'm gonna be preaching to the choir here a little bit, but when you think about what a kid's book represents, it represents for a kid, not necessarily learning about a new thing or a cool story. It represents special time with a grown-up in their life, right? Right. It's a teacher, right, reading at school. That's a parent right before bed. And for a parent, it 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 creates this, this very distilled, quiet moment where they're finally you know the kids off a screen their kids paying attention the kids listening and it's special and if if you can co-opt that moment with something that really matters so it's not just about like dragons loving tacos which is a real kids book by the way <laughs> but on something like empathy or privilege or gratitude you know or or, or death or voting I, I could go on right yeah all of a sudden it turns into something more than just special time it turns into a conversation and, and, and that's the thing that I had captured in my little book. And so I thought, I wonder if this can be reduplicated. And, and so I, I think we've done that to, to good effect.
1: Is there an ingredient in these books that you've kind of figured out or identified that actually like helps on the parent side of the conversation, right? Because you can write a book about death or empathy and use kind of metaphor and analogy and fun characters so that the kid is like, okay, I'm ingesting this and I'm kind of got like the concept in my mind through this example. But then you said like the most important part is that it leads to this conversation. And on the parents' end, like that can still end up being really difficult, right? And so I'm curious about that.
2: Yeah, well, two things. Um, you know, the first is we do the thing the parent doesn't want to do, which is we're honest with kids. We use the actual words about the thing, we speak to them truthfully, and we don't anchor into characters or story or metaphor or simile or tacos just, or dinosaurs. <laughs> or tacos or dinosaurs. <laughs> because guess what? When, you know, the blue dinosaur doesn't get along with the green dinosaur. And a kid's supposed to extrapolate out of that the concept of racism. It doesn't translate to them. They don't they don't track with that. Uh, And then the parents fumbling afterwards going, "Uh," and that's why George Floyd died. Right. It's like it doesn't it doesn't actually connect. And so that's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is we just assume kids are ready. We assume they're ready for this stuff. And it turns out they totally are. Mm -hmm. It's the parents who are panicking as they turn the page and going, oh my God, they just use this word. Like, can you use that word in a book with a six-year-old? And then they find out at the end that their six-year-old was totally cool with it. And now they've got questions and maybe not just questions. Now they've got experiences that they're sharing from their own life, from school, from at grandpa's house. And grandpa said this crazy thing. And now they're finally bringing it up and the parents going, Oh my God, how did I not know about any of this stuff? Right. It's because they were never willing to go there and use the actual words. And so that's a special ingredient. We sort of push parents over the cliff a little bit, but it's also a conversation starter. So my book on racism wasn't meant to like solve racism right <laughs> as if that could be done it was meant to introduce to start in and not even to provide a solution like here's what you do when racism happens it's here's how to just recognize it and give it a name and, and yeah. once you've done that for kids all sorts of other things unlock and so across all of our books that's the the secret ingredient if you will that we bring to the table it's just speaking
0: out from experience with my niece and nephew, right? Like, they're both preschool age, but they they love that experience, like you were saying, of books. And they bring it back over and over again, right? Like, they get the book, and then they bring it back, and they want to go over it. And they have... They they remember so much about it, and they internalize so much about it. And then, yeah, it acts as a jumping off point. Because you were talking about metaphor, and th- like that's usually how social issues are addressed in books but not other things right so if you're thinking about like science science is addressed directly and like yeah they'll do astronomy or something like that and then the kid uses that to like learn about astronomy gets really excited about it and builds all these core concepts at like a very young age right but like you're saying in the metaphorical books it doesn't connect and then like maybe when they're whatever, teens or preteens or something, they realize like, oh, I get what that book was trying to do if they happen to see it again. But like, you have no awareness of that early on, right? So it's... Yeah.
2: And and I think it comes down to those stories are important. Don't get me wrong, right? Uh, I love a Pixar movie as much as the next dad, but those can't be the only stories the Mm. kids hear. And so for us, um, we do a really simple thing, which is just we just speak directly about the subject to the kid and and create a shared language between them and the grown up there with them because we they're always a co-read experience it's very rare for a parent to buy one of our books and just hand it to their kid and go go learn about white privilege right Right. (laughs) this is not a thing right they read that book together and and then start to talk about it and so for us it's almost like we're selling the thing after the book which is all of the meaningful conversations the bonding the the special time together um, that happens after the book has been read. Right. And yeah, I think that's new. I think that's unique. Right. That, that's novel. Uh, and if I could add one more bit, we do all this, mind you, by writing all of our books in a single day. So, right. We're still a startup. But we still got to bring innovation to the table. And, and, and one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to first create, a, create a seat at the table for people who looked like me, for people who are underrepresented, for, for people whose stories weren't getting told and create a writing process that actually not only just allowed those folks to have a seat at the table, but actually fostered something sort of braver, more important, more pointed. And so we do this workshop process where we bring in a storyteller, an author, someone with a, a first-person-owned story, and we write the book in that five-hour session together. And it's it's wow. a pretty magical process. Um, and And as far as I know, is the quickest writing process for anybody in the publishing industry.
0: Right. And what's amazing with that is you also have like your commission out to the author is is above industry standards yeah. still at that point too, right? So it's like, because yeah, when I was first looking into it, I mean, part of the question that always comes up with TechCrunch or with our coverage in general is like, what's the angle, the tech angle or whatever, right? But you're totally you've reconstructed the publishing process from the ground up and eliminated a lot of the kind of like inefficient steps. Right. But also made it really special, but, and more advantageous to the creators, which is, which is super interesting. So like, like how else have you changed this and made this kind of, it, it seems, I think time to publication is another thing where you seem to be really ahead of the curve, but how did you look at those things and say, this is how we can make this better.
2: Yeah. I read a great little book. It's called The People's Guide to Publishing um, before I started the company. It was, it was a big reason why I took the leap. Um, written by a veteran here in town who's, who's run an independent publisher in, in town, I mean, in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from and, and where we're based. And And it was everything in 25 years that he's learned about publishing. And it was a great primer for me to go, here's what I want to keep and here's what I want to get rid of. And one of the things that is universal, and if you know anybody who's ever written a book, I don't care who they are, I don't care if they're J.K. Rowling, nobody likes working with their publisher. Right. Nobody. <laughs> nobody likes the process of going back and forth with their editor and the submission and the time it takes and then the time to get it to market. Like All of that stuff is a drag and nobody's yeah. like, this was so amazing, I can't wait to do it again. Like Writing a book is hard. And so we thought, what if we made all those experiences amazing? what if you came out of it and were like, I can't wait to do this again. When, 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 when do I get to do another book? Right. (laughs) And so that was having a better royalty on hardback ebook, audiobook. that was condensing down the writing process into something that was really urgent, honest, authentic, and could invite in somebody who's never written a book before, never thought about writing a book, but has a really wonderful story to tell and then getting to market really quick. Right. So for us, that's been, you know, as short as four days. Um, when wow. the pandemic hit, we did a, a kid's book about COVID-19 from acquisition of the author on Friday to literally shipping that book out as a free ebook on a Wednesday of the next week. And then, you know, we've done it as short as uh, seven days with our anti-Asian hate book. We've done it as short as a month with our Tulsa race massacre book, which actually went to print, wow. but our average is three months, right? Which again is like, when publishers want to be responsive to an event that happens in the world or something important, their turnaround time is 18 months, just full stop. Right. And so that leaves a lot out for the ability to speak to what's happening now. Right. Uh, for a lot of publishers, especially kids book publishers. And then on the, you know, the, the go to market side, if you will, us owning the store and being primarily direct, that's like, you know, I I would talk with CEOs of other publishing houses in the early days and they were like, wait a second. So you're not on Amazon. So you're not you don't want to be in Barnes and Noble. Like, what's up with that? And and for us, this and this will sound really obvious uh, is we wanted to have that relationship with the customer, right? That relationship with the customer, that that email address, that knowing what they like, what they don't like, what they buy, what they don't buy. All that stuff is opaque. When you're a big publishing house because not only you're on the 18-month timeline but gosh you might not even know if those books have sold through for another 12 months when you yeah. get those returns back right for us it's that immediate feedback loop and then i suppose last but not least was having that relationship allowed us to move into other adjacencies right so mm-hmm. the classes and the podcast to tell more stories and then you know once we had built up a pool of 60, 70 plus authors, either who've had books come out or who we have books coming out with in the future, we could go, Hey, you did the book on climate change. Do you want to go do a podcast on climate change and take that workshop model where we storytell there and go, we think we can adapt that actually to making a podcast. So not only can we get to market quicker with a podcast, we can be more streamlined with it. We can bring production costs down. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so we've been able to adapt that storytelling process across the board. That's fantastic.
0: It hews a lot closer to maybe more like what we do kind of at TechCrunch, which like like an internet publishing model versus um, a traditional book publisher, but it has all the benefits of, uh, of being an actual book publisher, a physical artifact. So
1: do you run into, like, I'm curious about what it's like to hire for you because. Yeah. How do you, you have source the, on the- well, there's the talent acquisition, right? Like the actual storytellers, which I think would be interesting, but also just like your core team. Mm. And you're like, OK, we're a startup. We innovate. But we're in the spaces of media and publishing. Like, come be hot and new with us, right? Like, it, <laughs> it just it seems like a little, you know, like there's a funny. What's your like pickup line?
2: Yeah, here's the beauty of it is I can say, come go change the world with me. Come empower the next generation. And it's true. Right. It's not come make the next social app that you can put a widget into or we're building the greatest B2B SaaS company where we're going to innovate how companies communicate with each other. It's like, cool, cool, cool. There's like 20 of those, you know, other ones <laughs> for us. The the mission is so specific. It's so strong. It's so compelling. Beyond that, I love hiring people who are going to do a thing they've never done before. I like it when people come in fresh and green And with new ideas and no conventional wisdom or thinking Uh, the publishing industry is hundreds and hundreds of years old and it refuses to change yeah it just absolutely refuses to change so it's like hollywood had their netflix moment and we see what's happening with the sort of change in terms of who gets to make content what content gets made who's behind the camera in front of camera etc um how it gets distributed We saw that happen with the music industry, right? iTunes and now streaming and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It never happened with the publishing industry. The change that Amazon brought was just a matter of distributing online, right? And owning more and more of the market share and driving down the margins. But they didn't change who made the books. In fact, they constrained it. So less people of color were making books, right? Less books that were interesting and innovative and that mattered were getting made. So, you know, Going out with that pitch and finding those folks, we've had a really fantastic time. And and especially I'm told the market's competitive right now. We have no problem getting really remarkable talent Wow! because we have a compelling mission because we allow people to come in and learn something new very often. And then we treat our people right. Like pay them a good wage, give them good benefits, you know, let them, you know, manage their own time. Like don't sort of, you know, be overbearing. And I find folks are more productive in a startup context when you're like that than when you're trying to be overbearing and micromanaging them and making them work 100 hour weeks. Like I'm a dad to six kids. I don't work more than 40 hours a week ever, ever. <laughs> and, I, and I would be stupid to if I did, because I'm not getting more productive. Like I'm not like crushing it. Right. If I do that, I'm just I'm just hurting myself. But maybe you would be. No, <laughs> I don't think we definitely we definitely subscribe to the other position that
0: you're describing. Like, we
1: skew away from hustle porn for sure. Yes,
0: yes, yeah, yeah. Like it's I'm weird because we put it
1: make my lunch after this. Yeah,
0: yeah. But like, TechCrunch <laughs> itself has like a lot of that there because just individuals that come to us have that. Although it's changing, sure. right? But like, yeah, among the company, like we're very much like here are the things that we want you to do. Go yeah. do those things. I don't care how you get them done, or when, or where. Like, as long as they're delivered and they and happen consistently,
2: we're happy. We don't with care. Them, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and if I could speak to the storyteller part of it as well, how do we how do we go acquire authors? Yeah. So uh, I can I can confidently say we have worked with best selling authors. We have worked with literal icons, both from history and, and your childhood. We have worked with teenagers. We have worked with kids a 10 year old wrote our leadership book. Um, and, and we have worked with everyday Joe's like me who, you know, are entrepreneurs who are pretending at telling stories. Right. And we never pay advances. We pay zero advances, no advances to anybody. And I can tell you that's like, Uh, It's not even unheard of. It's impossible in the publishing Mm -hmm. industry. The publishing industry thrives and runs on advances. Right. But for us, the mission is so compelling. The form factor is so compelling. The time to market is so compelling that often folks come to us and go, well, I just do this for free it's so important. Why would I not? Right. So it's, it's actually, it's icing on the cake that we actually compensate them at all.
0: When you were talking about the publishing industry and not changing it, because I was thinking like, Oh, well, you know, we grew up in the era of like blogs and stuff, right. And like social media. And that was meant to be the big unseating of publishing or the big change, but it didn't do anything. It, it, It created like an alter, a totally alternate path and, the two never really meet except when, you know, you have like someone who's an internet publisher who builds their own fame, goes over and gets the regular deal from Hatchet or whatever, right? But it yep. never really did destabilize the the traditional publishing industry. But I never thought of that before you brought that up. And it's like the model is still unchanged. It just runs parallel to this other new model that exists,
2: right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So I, I feel like um, on the on the publishing side of our business, we're part of a new wave of of new kinds of companies who are just going you know, there's a different way to do this. And if we can prove it out, it's, it's not only we, that we might topple the big guys, we might be the only game in town eventually because the, the idea of like signing on for this crazy 24 month thing to like make a thing and then get no money out of it as an author, as a creator is, is just bonkers, right? And then at the end of the day, guess who scoops up all of the economics? Amazon, every time. Yeah. Every time, right? So the publishers have to wake up at some point and go, you know, we should own the store. Why don't we own the store? Why don't we have, why are we not having a branded relationship with our customers, right? So when's the last time you bought a book from Penguin because it was a Penguin book? Never, (laughs) never, right? That's, that's unfortunate. So for us, that was back to founding principles of going, we're going to be a brand, People are going to have a relationship with us. So that means it actually doesn't matter who the author is. When we come out with a kid's book about identity, it won't matter who the author is. It'll matter what the topic is. And then it's coming from us because we're a trusted brand.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you've done a fantastic job with that too, so far. Like the brand of the website and the design of the website is fantastic. And it makes me want to engage with it right away. Right. Whereas you get, Mm -hmm. like you were saying, other publisher websites, you go to it and it's like... We did this because we have to um, <laughs> yeah, we but we don't we want you to. here. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, please go yeah. to
2: Amazon and buy our books, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> which is also a horrible experience to be fair. Yeah, but.
2: yeah.
0: If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're gonna offer you 50% off Either a one year or a two year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to ExtraCrunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for ExtraCrunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout, and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription how early on were you thinking? Cause you obviously came into it accidentally with like, I made this book and other people wanted it. But then how soon after that, when you realized this is going to be a business, did you say it needs to be a brand and people need to feel like they're going to connect with it directly?
2: It was one of the very first things that came to mind because one, I love books. I love books. I'm I can surrounded. tell again, books. video I, yeah. people can't see, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm um, reading all the time. And, and, and I thought, Who's the Coca-Cola of books? Right? Like, I know Harry Potter or Hunger Games, but I'm not sure I could pull the publisher off the top of my head of like who publishes those books. Right. And to be honest, does it even matter? Right. And I thought, that's that's really strange. And the only branded books that I could really point to were things like Book for Dummies spark mm-hmm. notes from way back cliff notes way back in the day right
0: yeah um and i thought Those penguin editions that have like a random painting
2: on the top <laughs> half yeah <laughs> that's exactly it right or golden books you know you go way back in the day yeah and so i thought you know what if a book publisher were a brand what could you change about the way that publishing just works by being a brand yourself? Well, I one, you can have a relationship with your customers. Now you're not talking about how many copies of this book can we sell, but now you're talking about what's the LTV of a customer across our whole catalog. And again, where can you go sort of into adjacent you know, media verticals to, to offer them more value, right? Whether those are free things or paid things or subscribing things, it, it doesn't matter. And then, you know, uh, for me, Like I'm a storyteller, like I cut my teeth, you know, as a photographer and then as a filmmaker and then, and then really running marketing and product at circle. And so, you know, building a brand was the first thing on my mind and, and one of the core tenets of the brand, and this will seem really obvious once I say it was, we're just going to say it like it is, right? So it's not just in our language to kids. We're just going to use the exact words, but the books themselves are going to broadcast. You can literally judge them by their cover that right. this is a kid's book about racism. It's literally yeah. what it is, right? That the book is aware that it's a book, right? And so when we came out with our little books, it was, oh, this is a little book about ideas, right? And this is cascading into our podcasts and obviously our classes. Um, and that's been a core tenet of our brand and, and something that I'm really, um, uh, I, I don't know, on my team about, uh, I don't know the right way to say it, but it's something i always try to keep course going what are we trying to say like what's the exact thing what's the just the true thing that we're trying to say is like sign up for our email list because we want to send you things <laughs> like then just put that down that's okay like people will read it and then they know what's going to happen right
0: people are so used to obfuscating intent or like it's so endemic that it must be hard to break people of the habits so of like no 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 Well, here what we want you to do is just go direct and just be like no straight up here's what we want to tell you the customer yeah
2: I, I, I think so. And one of our advantages in, in breaking people, those habits is actually our workshop process. So the thing that I described in the way that we make our books and our podcasts and our classes sounds like there would be like some special group, some special storytelling group inside the company that like did this thing. Right. It's actually not that everyone in the company participates in the workshop process. We never have more than three to five people in the workshop at any one time. But we've done, you know, 60 plus books. So everybody participates in the workshop. We usually have an editor. Sometimes we have a designer and then we have another member of the team that's from intern up to CEO right across the board. And one of the things that happens in the workshop is that we we over index on authenticity and vulnerability. Okay, just think of this not as a writing exercise. Think of this actually as a team building exercise. It's not designed that way, but it's exactly the outcome of it. When you over index on authenticity and vulnerability, where you just sort of go there. So, when you're workshopping a a book on emotions or or, or feminism or or empathy or disabilities, you come and you bring your whole self. And so, the first half of the workshop ends up looking a lot more like group therapy than (laughs) anything that has to do with startups (laughs) or writing, right? and our job as a team is to turn up the temperature of vulnerability and authenticity so that by the time the author goes now they're going oh god like they just shared their whole life story and like he was abandoned by his dad and he was abused and it's like okay now i got to go there right mm-hmm. what that creates authenticity vulnerability is trust right and when you have trust there's there's something there's a way you speak when there's real true trust with somebody whether you think about a parent, if you have real trust with them, a friend, and, and dare I say a customer, is you just say the real thing. Yeah. You don't feel like you need to trick them into something, right? And so that for us, since we do that as a storytelling model for our books, it then makes sense for us to talk about our books in that same way, where it's, 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 it's really about just say the real true thing. We don't need to trick people into buying this book. If they feel like it's right for their kid, they'll buy it. Let's just tell them what it is.
0: Me and Jordan talk about this. We've talked about this multiple times on here, but we have had many of those same moments at work uh, <laughs> where we'll be like, okay, like say the real thing, like, come on. Cause but it it is it's really hard, especially if you're going into a new context or if you're like trying to adhere to the rules of whatever, like the social rules of whatever has been established already, right? And you're like Oh, well, I need to do these things or I need to behave in this manner because all the people I've seen who are in positions of leadership behave in this manner or adhere to yeah. these kind of like restrictions, right? So, I mean, it's it's great that you're building it from the ground up. So it sounds like it's fundamental, intrinsic. At the moment you get into the company, you're kind of like, this is how this is how everything works. So it's okay well, across I
1: think the, board. the cool thing is you're also like training parents or whoever is having this special reading time with these kids to do the same thing. Like yeah, yeah. my partner has a 14 year old and I'm doing all her summer reading with her. Mm-hmm. And I've been shocked at what the school is assigning. Cause I'm like, wait, these are like intense topics, right? Like this yeah. kid's 14. Like, you know, are we sure? And just kind of like going along for the ride. There was actually reading the poet X and there was a chapter or a poem in there called Fingers, which is about masturbation. And I'm trying to talk Mm -hmm. to this 14-year-old girl about it. And it's like, there's no guide for me in Poet X about how to do that, right? But like, it feels like what you're doing is not only being honest with the parent who's buying the book, being honest with the kid about what the book is and what it's about and using all the right words, but like coming from this place where it's like, we can actually have this conversation very honestly with no shame or embarrassment and kind of like get where we need to go in a really organic way just based, it's like a form following function right yeah which seems really useful for everyone involved right not just like yeah. the company or the the kid but the parent too
0: i'm curious though because jordan you felt uncomfortable with that obviously right like if i I'm, felt
1: i i read it i felt uncomfortable uh, i knew the conversation was coming because we're reading a She's reading, I'm reading, and then we come together and chat about it. So I knew it was coming, and I kind of had to like work myself into this mentality of like, I have to be really honest and like uh, be have this be a really okay thing. Because if I make it weird, then it's weird for her, right? It's going to be right, weird for right. her no matter what. So I have to be really, really cool, and I had to like tr- truly focus on being like, this is an okay thing to talk about. I'm just going to talk about it, and I'm going to be honest about it, and everything's going to be okay. But it took a lot of, like, if I had to do that with her right in real time, I w- I don't know that I could have pulled it right. off. I don't know that you I even did pull it off, runway. but, yeah.
0: Did you, like, welcome that? Like, it sounds like, because that's my, that's basically my question, and I guess it's, like, Jordan, did you welcome that feeling of, like, okay, this is a good opportunity? And then Jelani, like, the question for you would be, like, is there, is there a, a Point with the audience where you have to get over this anxiety about the thing because the the audience of parents you're talking to probably hasn't had this experience yeah. and is anxious, right? Uh, but maybe they welcome it, and that's the question of Jordan, right? Like, do you welcome it once you realize that it's coming or that you yeah. have to? Yeah, I do mean, it? I
1: think like upon reading it, I was like, m- my mind was like, holy shit, I have to talk to her about this. Holy shit, I have to talk to her about this. And it got like more and more graphic, and I was like, no, no, no. And then the second, I closed the book. It's like, well, it has to happen no matter what. And actually like if I was her age, I don't know that I would have gotten that same feedback from anyone or like that I would have been able to have that conversation and been more confused. So like, yeah, I was like, okay, this is an opportunity for her to see someone older that she looks up to saying like, this is a totally normal thing. Like, don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. You know, we can talk about it. You could talk to me about yeah. it. You could talk to your mom about it. And I did ultimately welcome it after I got over the hump. I think of like, damn, I got to do this.
2: Yeah, right. well, I think th- I think there's two really important points there. One is is that you didn't have that conversation with a grown up in your life probably at that age. Um, and I think we are a generation of grown ups who didn't talk to our parents really about anything. Right? Our parents actively avoided conversations. They said things like, "I'll tell you when you're older. You wouldn't understand." or you're not ready yet which right. is all code for don't ever bring this up again <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> cuz i don't want to talk about it right but now we're in a place where we're socially active we 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 care about climate change right we're in therapy right we we know people we live in cities where people don't look like us or talk like us or have the same experiences as us and and so we're we're a lot more open and yet we're scared to death because we never learned how to have these conversations when it comes to kids where we genuinely are afraid of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Because the thing we remember from kids as kids is, is something like, what if we break, what if we got broken in half, right? What if we got scarred for life? What if we say the wrong thing? Cause we don't want that same damage that happened to us. that we've carried into adulthood to happen. To those kids in our lives, which just sort of frees us up. But how do you get that to work in a product world where like, we're trying to sell things that, that that people like actively may not want to do, right? right. Like, they're like, I, I I genuinely don't want to have this conversation with my kid. I think we we tap into a handful of things. One is is we we really promote this idea that kids are ready; they really are, which then puts the onus to go. The reason why you don't want to have this conversation is not the kid's fault; it's actually your fault, right? And I think the it's really about the friendly presentation of the books to go this just starts the conversation it's not it doesn't go into you know gory detail about every single point right this is we were trying to start a conversation with a six-year-old right so it's not the racism book doesn't need to go into civil rights and slavery and it doesn't need to do all that it just needs to start the conversation and use the actual words and now, If you start a conversation with a six-year-old about racism, by the time they become 14 and you're still having that conversation, it doesn't feel as uncomfortable or weird or jarring. And so for us the starting early is actually the easier thing so that you're not building up all that pressure so that all of a sudden they're 16 and they're like, well, Hey, like, what do you think about this? And you're like, Oh my God, I'm not ready to have this conversation. Like, right. Like yes. almost everything yeah. is
1: easier with your kid if you started early, right? Like you get your kid yep. eating like all the foods they think they don't like early. Like it's much easier when they're 10 and they're not screaming about dino nuggies. Right. So like, yeah, whatever you start early is going to be easier ultimately, which might be a hard 1000%. thing to sell but it feels like it you know once a, a parent probably clicks into that really quickly and it's like oh if I start this now we'll we'll be building
2: right and it also has to do with the importance of it so there there are sort of three types of ways that these conversations get forced um, One is a parent goes this is an important conversation I should probably have with my kid that's like the the ideal scenario right I should teach my kid about this thing because it's important proactive right? The next one is, is my kid had an event. Their grandpa died, right? Their teacher has cancer. They're getting bullied at school. Somebody called my kid the N word, right? Like all of those are forcing functions to go. It is no longer an option to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. I must talk about it. Now the question is how, right? And then I think the the last one is, is, is the school scenario is teachers going, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of. I'm going to get kids talking about this. So they carry these conversations home. So they also sort of force that function with parents in their lives to go, Hey mom, guess what we learned about at school today. We read a kid's book about, you know, fill in the blank. Right. And the parent goes, Oh wow. Okay. I guess that conversation started now I should, I should leap in and write and find other resources and things to, to, to dive in those. We find them across the board um, all sort of work the the worst one is, is that it gets forced by something that happens and a parent tries to follow up with now, let me try and explain that thing that happened that actually can create not a lot of trauma for kids, but it, the trauma happens, right? And the kids are confused and they, it doesn't make sense to them having the conversation in advance. Then they go, they have a language for They're it prepared for it. Yeah. Right. they prepared yeah. for it. Yeah. And like, look, We've done books on all sorts of topics, and I've been called all sorts of names. and I can't tell you the amount of racism I've faced simply because I, my book and books that we've written about address racism for kids. The biggest criticism that I, as a founder get, and we as a company get is that, whoa, you can't talk about this stuff with kids. You can't do a kid's book about sexual abuse and have read it to a kid, read it to a five year old, right? When the reality is, the truth of it is is that, not starting those conversations that early is it's almost unconscionable. Yeah. Um, Statistically, a kid who is four and five years old needs to have that conversation, must have that conversation, right? Because one in four boys, and I I almost want to say it's, it's like one in three girls by the time they're 18 will have been abused by someone who is someone they know in their life. Like, (laughs) That means the conversation is not just on the table. It is table stakes, right? Is a conversation that you must have. That doesn't make it less uncomfortable or weird or like, how do I do this? And so our book steps in to go, let us help. We're a trusted brand. We're a trusted resource for not just education, but social emotional learning. And we're also bringing an authentic voice who's not just speaking academically about this, but they're telling their own story. So when you read a kid's book about sexual abuse, you're hearing Evelyn's story, right? And and a kid can go, oh, wow. And they could, you know, as early as six, you know, can go, oh, wow. That, that reminds me of a story that I heard at school or something that happened to me and unlocks all these other conversations. And I know that's scary for parents. It's scary for me, right? Mm-hmm. What can of worms am I going to open? But what's the other option? Just like bury my head in the sand. Yeah, exactly. Per, you, know, if, you know, hope
0: it all it's works still there. out. It's just because you're not seeing it, right? It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great point. And I think it's like, Ideally in like a society that was functioning well, like people could go to sort of friends and peers and be like, how did you start this? How did you talk? And I'm sure people do. Right. But like they don't, the resources didn't exist. And like you said before, it's because we have a generational issue where no one had these conversations when we were growing up. So you have no experience or example to base it on most of the time and to have a resource that's there that people are creating with this intention in mind is a great way to get that started. Right. And then hopefully it becomes a virtuous cycle and people can say like, Oh, like we use this book and then that led to this kind of conversation that I had. And, and that becomes a community, but it starts with something. It has to start with something cause it, it can't start, start from something. our
2: experience cause it doesn't exist. Yeah. And there's, there's all sorts of fringe benefits here that we're bringing to the table. Um, one is um, over half of our authors are people of color. Like, that's so much higher above industry standard that it's ridiculous. In fact, most books that are about characters of color are not written by people of color when it comes to kids' books. There are more books that feature animals as the protagonist within kids' books than than people of color. Wow. That's insane. That's yeah. insane, right? Like, So one of the things that we do is is we do a book like a kid's book about empathy and it's by you know darren k roberts who's a black dad who you know coached in the nfl and now teaches empathy to college students like that representation goes much further than let's just tell an important story to kids is let's represent something that really truly deeply is important and mattered and, and hasn't been done for kids and 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 why is that so important It's not just because historically it should have always been important, but now more than ever, that census data that came out from 2020, finally for the very first time, there's no dominant race among kids anymore. White people are no longer the sort of dominant or majority race. It actually is. There's over 51% kids of color. But what happens when that 51% never sees themselves inside the books, never sees that author that comes to the scholastic book fair. (laughs) They never look like them, right? Like what kind of just, again, just continual damage that does. And so for us, it's not just like a, Oh, let's check the diversity box is let's, let's change the game and let's not just change the game. Let's have a kick-ass business while we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So we show this is, this is actually, this is maybe the only way to do it. And the fact that nobody's done it this way before, it has to do with institutional racism and and, and and poor business management and a whole bunch of legacy things that shouldn't matter anymore, but are sort of dominating the whole industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that was going to be the place where I wanted to end it up just to circle back to the business was what is the conversation with investors and the conversations around why this is a profitable business at scale despite having like, you know, the social mission, which can cue unfortunately to a lot of legacy investors like, Oh, well it's not going to be a profitable business or it's not going to look, it's not going to have the numbers or the multiples that I'm looking for. Right. Like luckily that seems to be changing, but yeah. What, what are the, what were those conversations like for you initially? Did you have a lot of resistance and you know, is it, is it changing? Is it, is it becoming easier to convince folks to come on board?
2: Uh, I, I I think the answer is kind of. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I was lucky that I, it was my second time going out as a founder and, and, and raising some money. So I knew what I was doing. And I also knew what kind of investors I wanted on my cap table. Um, and I also had a, a heck ton of confidence about what I was up to and the business model that I wanted to build around it. And so that meant not just investors saying no to me but it also meant me saying no to investors and i'm not talking about 5k 10k checks i'm talking about million plus checks where i'm like oh, i don't think you're a fit right and and that's me going you don't want to be married to these people 10 years from now if if they fundamentally want to do something different with the business it it also meant knowing exactly the business that we were is that we you know were initially a d2c kids book business that that's what we were and i you know, I can't tell you how many investors were like, but can this be an app that's also social and for kids right. and has micropayments? <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, can you go B2B with this? And, uh, uh, you know, so, so that's where we started. And then, you know, evolving into, you know, um, imagine going out and pitching a series A and going, we're going to be a media company for kids on important story. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like not a hot industry, right? Uh, you know, we weren't commanding like hundred million plus valuation, right? So uh, it, it was about standing firm and going, this is the vision that we have. And, and going and finding investors that were aligned on that. And again, not just letting them choose us, but us choosing them. It's not an accident that 93% of our capital for our series A came from black investors. Right. We were choosy, we were picky, we wanted the right partners. And we wanted, you know, just imagine having a diverse author set a diverse team, a diverse founder, and then having an all white cap table, Oof, you know? Yeah. And, and that sounds like that's like putting it aggressively or tersely, but that is just common. That is just the way that it is. And I just yeah. said, not with my business, it just won't be. My values will have to be reflected throughout all of the things that we do. And especially if five years, 10 years from now, we have a great, Exit event, right? And and the good thing happens, and every, you know we all win. And it's it's you know it's Andreessen Horowitz, you know, like <laughs> waving the. I I just I like it's not where I wanted to be. It's yeah. it's it's not the kind of win that I wanted to have. So, anyways, um, it, it was awesome. It was awesome going out and pitching investors. I, I love pitching investors. I think investors are incredible, and I love it when I find ones that 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 believe in me and believe in what we're building. And we have this, the most amazing investor set where they are encouraging, they're helpful, they're thoughtful, they're not down my throat, they're not trying to push agendas, they're not trying to turn us into, you know, a B2B SaaS company, you know, they can command crazy multiples, like they want us to be who we are. Because, because ultimately the vision is, and and I'll just let the cat out of the bag, the vision is, is can we become the Walt Disney company of important stories for kids, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? And, and I can tell you what, if it's not us, it's someone because these stories, I mean, they just have never been told for kids. Just never. Right. You know, like uh, I, as much as the little mermaid deals with like loss and identity, and having a voice, whether, whether well or poorly, and there's a
0: singing crab and she's a part fish. I, mean, I, like, I, I know, the main you know, things yeah
2: the, the reality that the average seven-year-old and eight-year-old is living in. Is that they have a smartphone? They've already asked their parents to be on TikTok, or just have joined TikTok because they can. And they see the protests on TV. They see the evacuation from Afghanistan. They, you know, they talk with their friends at school. This sort of Pollyanna vision of like, "Ooh, our kids are just so innocent," and we, "Ooh, we can't bring that up with them." It's like you better believe they're showing up to school every day and talking about these things yeah. with their friends. So as grownups, do we want to opt out of those conversations or do we want to wade in and participate? Because guess what? Kids still need us. They still need us to have these conversations. They still need us to talk with them. And, and also, I think we need them. We need, we need to hear their experiences. We need to hear their thoughts. We need to hear their questions and, and, and participate, be in relationship with them. And I know what I'm describing sort of, we're so far afield from the idea of a startup now, we're just talking about life, but who is doing this work? I, uh, you know, hmm. kind of nobody, right? There's a handful of companies that are, that are really doing it. And I'd love to see this be a verticalized media company. That's as big as the Walt Disney company that plays in TV and film and books. And uh, dare I say it, you know, parks, maybe they're just therapy centers. I don't know. Right? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever hit, heard about a kid's life being changed because they watched cars, but we get stories every day about kids' lives who are genuinely changed because they read our books. That tells me something, you know, that's sticky. And for an investor, they go, whoa, that, I, I, I like that future. I not only want that future to exist, but I think there's some money to be made there as well. All right, Jordan, that was our talk
0: with Jelani Memory. What do you think about Jelani and about the business that he's created?
1: I love it. I mean, I it, it kind of makes me a little bit envious, like knowing that this kind of resource is available to like parents and kids today
0: like you want to go back in time
1: a little bit yeah i mean kids these days are faced with a lot of challenges that we didn't have right true we didn't have like smartphones, social media kind of like not to mention everything that's going on in the world and all the stresses that kids see on tv and the news and stuff but they also have like the opportunity right to have these like kind of difficult conversations early on really like ground themselves in a much more healthy way of thinking about difficult things and not feeling maybe shame or confusion or kind of like avoidance around things that are really, really important. And that if you learn early, you can kind of like grow and address throughout your whole life in a much more healthy way.
0: I can't wait to get some of these books for my niece and nephew. And also, I can't wait to see what else Johnny does with the company. I mean, you know, the cool thing too, was that it was that it is a tech play and that he's really upsetting the kind of paradigm of the publishing industry in a very fundamental way. And I think that he's has the potential to do that with other types of media as well. I mean, they've already started, but it sounds like they're going to do a lot more.
1: Yeah. The thing I'm most excited about maybe is having a little hope for a well-adjusted generation of children. You know, like I feel like the education system's so broken and there's so many social media and there's so many like kind of Effects working against youth growing up and knowing what the hell they're doing, and this was like a glimmer of hope. It made me a little bit more optimistic, so I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, me too. So that's found for this week. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, which is five stars amounts always, then you should go and review us five stars. That's what we always do. <laughs> yeah, well, every single episode
1: we go and we just <laughs> log in. Let's say five for this one for sure. So yeah. you should join us. Your vote matters.
0: Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch's managing editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited by Grace Mendenhall, and Maggie Stamitz is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Jelani Memory, founder and CEO at a kids' company, About. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.